This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Turn, if you would, to the book of Judges. We're going to start in chapter 13. One year ago, we began a church-wide journey through the Bible. During the school year, everyone who comes through the doors on Sunday morning is studying the same story, uh, the same passage of Scripture. So even as I speak, from two-year-olds all the way through seniors in high school, uh, they're all looking at the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at in this room this morning. And my hope is that this has created opportunities to discuss the scriptures outside of this room and outside of Sunday mornings. After all, parents, you know what your kids are looking at. There's no mystery to it. So last fall, we began in Genesis. In the beginning, God created a perfect world with the design that Adam and Eve would have children and expand the borders of Eden such that one day Eden would be global not just local. The mission of God in the world today remains the same. For there to be a populous people living in God's presence, in his place, and walking with him in holiness and obedience. Well, it didn't take long for Adam and Eve to succumb to temptation. Rather than retaining their place in the created order as a derivative creature, they usurped God's authority and declared themselves to be the chief arbiters of good and evil. They plucked God from his throne, as it were, and placed themselves there to rule as they see fit. What we saw then, we continue to see now. Human beings make great creatures, created beings, but we make lousy gods. Nonetheless, God's mission remained the same for there to be a populous people living in God's presence, in his place, walking with him in holiness and obedience. So God started over with Noah and his family. The flood annihilated the corrupted creation, but it didn't deal decisively with an often overlooked aspect to the problem. What is that problem? Well, when you're with kids someday, ask them, what went on the boat with Noah? And they'll tell you, animals went on the boat with Noah. What else will they say? People went on the boat with Noah. Then you ask them, what else went on the boat with Noah? The answer is sin. Sin went on the boat with Noah. So when Noah and his family came off the boat with a brand new start ahead of them, sin also walked off the boat into this new creation. It didn't take long before that creation was corrupted again. But God would not be dissuaded from his mission. Because God had made a covenant with humanity never to send another flood, God started over differently by using a specific group of people and calling them his treasured possession. Through this people group, God would continue his mission for there to be a populous people living in his presence, in his place, walking with him in holiness and obedience. And so God preserved, provided for, led the people of Israel into the land of Canaan. This promised land would be a new kind of Eden, a 
place where Israel's population would grow, a place where God's presence would dwell with them, and a place where Israel would walk with God in holiness and obedience. And so we come to the book of Judges, and we started that last May. Before we launch into it again, I want to read Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 6. Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 6 serves as the backdrop for the book of Judges. It'll give you the lay of the land before we re-enter this book. Deuteronomy 7, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you're to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people his treasured possession. So Israel's mission in entering the land of Canaan, the promised land, Israel's mission was to Yahweh-ize Canaan. Yahweh is the Hebrew name for Lord. To Yahweh-ize Canaan. To bring Canaan into conformity with the plans, purposes, and word of God. But that did not happen. The book of Judges lays that out clearly for us. Instead, of, instead Israel was Canaanized. The various people groups living in Canaan brought Israel into conformity with their plans, their purposes, and their word. So the entire book of Judges can be summed up with one infographic. Take a look at it. The entire book of Judges can be summed up this way. Israel starts off serving the Lord, but then they fall into sin and idolatry. God hands them over to their oppressors. The other people's living in Canaan. They're enslaved. Israel cries out to the Lord. God raises up a judge or a deliverer, a rescuer, a leader. Israel is delivered. Then they serve the Lord, and then it starts all over again. It's cyclical, and it's downward. It's cyclical, and it's downward. Which e with each successive scene, it gets worse and worse and worse. And one of the striking pieces of evidence demonstrating this deterioration is found in Judges chapter 13, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. What's missing in this story is no mention of them crying out to God. None. In each instance before this, when God hands them over to their enemies, they cry out to God. This is the first time they don't. Why? They have so adopted and adapted to the values, mores, and idols of the Philistines, there is no longer a disconnect between them and their oppressors. Israel has been Canaanized. God's people have gone sideways. And the story of Samson is representative of this. The idols they have subtly aligned with are idols that are not unique to Canaan. 
They're not unique to Canaan. They are idols that transcend time and culture. They are idols that threaten us today. Christians living in the 21st century face similar challenges. While the forms have changed, the names have changed, the underlying idolatry has not changed. The question is, has the church been Americanized? Have we as individual Christians been Americanized? Here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at characteristics of an Americanized church and the necessary remedies for the Americanized church. Characteristics of an Americanized church and the necessary remedies for the Americanized church. And we'll see this all in the story of Samson, Judges 13 through 16. Samson is a very modern American-like character, as we'll quickly discover. First, characteristics of an Americanized church. Three of them. Number one is hedonism. Hedonism is simply satisfying desires, whatever they may be. Samson is a hedonist. He's portrayed as a man who is controlled by his desires. Let me show it to you. Judges 14. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. That's it. I've seen her. I want her. Samson's eyes play a leading role in this story. It's not an exaggeration to say that his eyes are the driving force behind his behavior. What he sets his eyes on, he wants, and what he wants, he gets. Here's another example. On his way to Timnah to retrieve his bride, a lion attacked him, but God enabled him to tear apart the lion with his bare hands. Then we read this. Sometime later, he went back to marry this gal. He turned aside and looked to look at the lion's carcass, and in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands and ate as he went along. Now you might say, what's the big deal? Well, there's two interesting things to observe about this. First, how many of us are going to be so governed by an appetite for honey, an appetite so strong that we're willing to risk taking on a swarm of bees without, I'm guessing, any sort of equipment to do so in order to eat the honey that we see there? Second, Samson's Jewish. Coming into contact with a carcass would render him unclean under Jewish law, but he doesn't care about any of that. He's so governed by his sensual desires, he throws caution to the wind, ignores the word of God to get his desires satisfied. One more example, Judges 16.1. One day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. Samson's a hedonist. Throughout his life, he's characterized as a man who seeks to satisfy his desires. And his desires are expressed in mainly three categories. Sex, food, and outrage or anger. He's a very modern American character. If it feels good to do something, if you experience some kind of emotional release, that must be the right thing to do. That's his motto. If it feels good to do something, if you experience some kind of emotional release by doing that thing, it must be the right thing to do. I wonder how many of us have drifted into this sort of worldview. If it feels good to do something, that must be the right thing to do. 
So in this way, to what degree has the church been Americanized? A few years ago, Christian sociologist Christian Smith published a groundbreaking work entitled Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. He interviewed and surveyed thousands of teenagers all over the country in order to try to understand how they see the world. He boiled down his findings into a single term that has become mainstream in modern parlance. The term is moralistic, therapeutic deism. And I'll define that in a minute. But there's another interesting note that Smith discovered because he wanted to know where this was coming from. Where were the teenagers getting this worldview? Was it Hollywood? Was it social media? He discovered the number one influence in these kids' lives were their parents. So moralistic therapeutic deism isn't an American teenager worldview. It's an American worldview. For all intents and purposes, moralistic therapeutic deism is the number one religion in America today. Here's the statement of faith for MTD. A God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Good people go to heaven when they die. And the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Final statements revealing. Central goal of life is happiness and to feel good. An Americanized church would agree. An Americanized church would agree. An Americanized Christian would agree. Now, maybe none of us would give verbal assent to this, but at times I find myself looking at my life, wondering maybe I'm more of a hedonist than I thought I was. There are numerous ways that we demonstrate an inclination towards it. Let me mention briefly just two symptoms of hedonism. Suffering and outrage. We'll look at those two. Symptoms of hedonism. Suffering and outrage. One way we demonstrate a symptom that hedonism is a problem for us is in our approach to our handling of suffering. Obviously, if happiness and feeling good is the central goal of life, we are going to have a strong aversion to anything that isn't happy or feel good. Yes? So here's a question. Are you shocked by suffering? When it happens in your life, are you shocked by it? I think the hedonists would be. But Christians? See, if suffering gives us whiplash as badly as it does the rest of society, hedonism may be more of a problem for us than we thought. Another way we demonstrate inclination towards this in our handling of suffering is how we uh, deal with it when it comes upon us and how we walk through it. 
Here's the bottom line. If we Christians are as devastated and demoralized by suffering as the rest of society, we are communicating a message to them. If we are as devastated and as demoralized by suffering as the rest of society, we are saying to them, Christianity has nothing unique to offer them during times of distress. That's what we're telling them. When Paul was writing to the church in Thessalonica, he said, Christians don't grieve like those who have no hope. It's very interesting what he's drawing out. He says, no, Christians grieve. We're not Stoics. We don't keep a stiff upper lip. We don't just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We grieve, but we do so with hope. That's both an oddity in our society and also a resource for people. Christians should journey through suffering differently than those who don't know Jesus. So the first symptom of hedonism is our handling of suffering. Are we shocked by it? And do we handle it differently? Do we walk through it differently than the rest of society? A second symptom is our proclivity to be frequently outraged. Tom Kreider, in a New York Times op-ed piece, drew attention to this increasing problem that he calls outrage porn. Outrage porn. Essentially, he makes the case that we get our jollies over being outraged at the slightest provocation and then confronting those who've outraged us. It's a sick sort of pleasure that characterized Samson's life. We're easily angered. We're easily irritated. And then we feel entitled to unleash some sort of judgment on the one who's irritated us. As an aside here, let me just mention this. You know, the book of Proverbs is a textbook on living a wise life. Do you know what your life would look like if you lived out the book of Proverbs perfectly? You know what your life would look like if if you lived out the book of Proverbs perfectly. You know what it looked like? The life of Jesus. It would look like the life of Jesus. If you lived out the book of Proverbs perfectly, your life would look exactly like Jesus' life. So when we open up that book of Proverbs, we got a couple of verses that come at us on this issue. Proverbs 12, 16. Just listen. Just listen. Proverbs 12, 16. Fools show their annoyance at once. Fools show their annoyance at once. But the prudent overlook an insult. Who shows their annoyance at once? Fools. One more. Proverbs 19.11, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. It is to one's glory to overlook 
an offense. The book of Proverbs is steering us away from outrage porn. Being easily irritated, being easily angered is not the model Jesus left us. Handling suffering poorly, venting outrage at the slightest provocation are signs of a hedonist and an Americanized church and Christian. Second characteristic, success obsession. Samson loves to write songs about his professional accomplishments. After he tears apart the lion, he goes back to visit it. He's got the honey in there. He composes a song in his own honor. He writes, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. And of course, he doesn't compose this song to be enjoyed only within the privacy of his own home. No, he puts it out there for the public to enjoy as well. But he's not done. After killing a thousand Philistines with a donkey's jawbone, he writes another Billboard Top 100. He writes, with a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. He is in absolute love with his accomplishments. He's obsessed with his success. Now look, the Bible has always made a distinction that most of us may not be aware of. And that's this. It's possible to have the gifts of the Spirit, but lack the fruit of the Spirit. Let me say it again. It's possible to have the gifts of the Spirit, but lack the fruit of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul tells us that the gifts of the Spirit are skills for doing things, abilities for serving and helping people. But in Galatians 5, Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is character traits of being, qualities like patience and gentleness and self-control. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us it's possible to have skills of teaching, of speaking, of leadership, etc., and yet lack the fruit of love without which gifts are worth nothing. You follow? So we will at times come across characters in the Bible like Samson who possess incredible gifts for doing things but lack the fruit of holiness. It's a warning. God could be granting you success with your outer life, but your inner life is a wreck. Samson is an incredibly successful man outwardly, but his inner life is a mess. And this is why I think success is harder on the soul than suffering. The Puritan John Flavel put it this way. He said, outward gains are ordinarily attended with inward losses. Outward gains are ordinarily attended with inward losses. External success can wreak havoc on our souls. Such seemed to be the case with Samson. Externally, visibly, he's an incredibly powerful, successful man, but inwardly he's rotting. What about you? What about you? Many of us have impressive-looking outer lives but what does your inner life look like as a pastor one of the most powerful humbling convicting and at times haunting statements on this topic 
was uttered by another Puritan named John Owen who taught at Cambridge University in England. He said this, a minister may fill his pews, his communion roll, and the mouths of the public. But what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is, and no more. A business professional may have an impressive balance sheet and clout with the broader business community. But what that business professional is on her knees in secret before God Almighty, that she is and no more. An Americanized church is obsessed with outward success. An Americanized Christian is obsessed with outward success. Third characteristic is powerless. The Americanized church, the Americanized Christian is ultimately powerless. After spending the night with a prostitute, Samson falls in love with Delilah, a Philistine woman. Nothing new to see here. But Delilah is up to something. She's in cahoots with the Philistine rulers who want to know the secret to Samson's strength. So she comes to Samson and she says this, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Curiously, Samson answers her. But he says this, he says, If anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. He lies to her. You gotta ask, what kind of relationship is this? What does she do? She ties him up with seven fresh bowstrings, just like he said. The Philistines pounce on him, but because he lied, he breaks them easily and he escapes. Why in the world does Samson stay? Why is Samson so indifferent to the fact the woman he's in love with just betrayed him? This game continues three more times. And Samson makes no effort to curb it, no effort to get out. Why? He's an addict. He's an addict. He's a sex addict. He's probably a thrill-seeking addict. He likes the danger that this game provides him, the exhilaration it gives him. And like most addicts, he thinks he can keep feeding his addiction without suffering any consequences. But how this scene ends foreshadows how it ends for all addicts. Delilah wears him down. And addiction does not breathe life into you. It wears you down. Samson tells her the truth. The Philistines cut his hair, they pounce on him, and they pluck out his eyes. You cannot court hedonism and success obsession for long before it ruins you. Samson ends up blind and bound because he's ignored his inner life. All his attention, all his best effort went to his outer life. An Americanized church is a blind and bound church. An Americanized Christian is a powerless Christian. Why? Because all our attention, all our energy, all our fascination, 
All our devotion has been given to satisfying desires and propping up impressive looking outer lives. And when our attention has been given to our outer lives, our inner lives turn dark and scary and lifeless. So what are the remedies? What are the remedies? There's two in the text. Number one is a perpetual posture of dependence. Samson failed to acknowledge the source of his outer success. So I'm going to show you. Each time Samson was victorious, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Look at it. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He struck down a 1,000 men. But at no point in the story does the author indicate Samson acknowledged this. At no point it is, at no point until the very end, standing in the Philistine temple of Dagon with his eyes plucked out, his, head, his hair cut, Samson finally prays, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. This is the first time we see Samson acknowledge the true source of his professional accomplishments. One of the necessary remedies for being an Americanized Christian is to remember that God gives the success. God gives the blessing. God gives the wins. Apart from him, our efforts accomplish nothing. Nothing. The moment we stop acknowledging this in conscientious thought and prayerful dependence, we set ourselves up to be blind and bound. Remembering this, remembering this is the only thing that's going to keep us on our knees. So let me ask you, when's the last time you took the time to acknowledge the source of your professional accomplishments? When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you took the time to acknowledge the source of blessing your family has received? When's the last time you took the time to acknowledge the source that every spiritual blessing you have in Christ is because of what God has done in your life? God gives us success God gives the blessing. God gives the wins. Apart from him, our efforts accomplish nothing. Second remedy is spending your life. Out of all the items listed on Samson's impressive resume, his greatest accomplishment came at the end through his death. God answered his prayer. He strengthened him one more time. Samson gave a great push, and the temple of Dagon crumbled to the ground, killing the Philistine oppressors inside. Look, you are most useful to God and others when you're giving of yourself rather than taking for yourself. Your greatest accomplishment will not be an acquisition, but a sacrifice. God made your life to be spent, to be used up. We see this so clearly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them how? By the cross. His death was a victory. His crucifixion a triumph. Living a Christianized life 
is all about continuing that pattern. See, some of us act like life is an oversized game of Monopoly. You've played that never-ending game before, right? We act like life is an oversized game of Monopoly where the way to win is to accumulate as many properties as you can, either by purchasing outright or by clever trading with your opponents. And then you keep adding houses and hotels, extracting rent from others until you eventually drive them into bankruptcy. You sit back, you rub your hands together, and you start counting your stacks of cash. That's an Americanized life. But a Christianized life? It's more like a game of Uno or Crazy Eights. Where the point is to run out of cards first. You want to deploy every card you have knowing that, that each card left in your hand at the end counts against you. Don't get stuck at the time of your funeral with leftover cards. Your greatest accomplishments will not be acquisitions, but sacrifices. Let's pray. Gracious God, convict us where we have drifted into adopting the values, mores, and idols of our time. The gravitational pull of our fallen, sin-infected world is inward, and we slowly and subtly become narcissists. Wake us from this slumber. Thank you for your word to us this morning, which is such a vivid reminder that everything we have comes from you. You give the success, you give the blessings, you give the wins and we can take credit for none of it. Thank you for the way in which this story foils the gospel where we can see the goal of life is to have no leftover cards. Make us self-denying, hard to offend, sacrificial givers, all for the purpose of making much of Jesus the ultimate giver whose name we pray. Amen.